Greetings. This is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. On today's podcast, we're going to be discussing capacity discipline and the art and science of capacity management. I didn't come up with that notion on my own. In fact, I'm pulling it directly from a piece that Diamond Hill published earlier this year, which is available in the insights section of the firm website, www.diamond-hill.com. And I've got a great panel for the discussion covering client service, equities, and fixed income. Joining me for this discussion are Joanne Quiniff, Diamond Hill's Chief Client Officer, Chris Welch, Portfolio Manager for Diamond Hill's Small Cap, Small Mid Cap, and Mid Cap Strategies, and Henry Song, Portfolio Manager for Diamond Hill's Short Duration Securitized Bond and Core Bond Strategies. Together, we'll explore the importance of capacity management, the nuances in determining each specific strategy's capacity range, and how capacity determination differs between equity and fixed income. As with most of our podcasts for the past year and a half, we're recording this session via Zoom, and I ask for your patience for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy our conversation around the importance of capacity discipline and how it can benefit investors. Joanne, Chris, and Henry, I want to welcome you to the podcast and thank you for your time in discussing a, a very important topic, not only for Diamond Hill, but for, for all of our investors. Joanne, I'm going to start off with you. Uh, at Diamond Hill, strategically managing capacity has long been part of our philosophical approach to investing and a significant piece of our client alignment philosophy. Why does capacity management hold uh, such a major role in what we do as investors? Thanks, Doug. Our goal is to generate excellent long-term investment returns for our clients. And in order to do that, you know, generate the results that our clients expect of us, we believe it is imperative to align our interests directly with those of our clients. Capacity discipline is just one example of our alignment. To mitigate the inherent conflicts of interest that exist in our industry around fees that are generated on assets under management, we must begin first by directly aligning portfolio manager compensation to long-term results. And at the same time, giving them the decision rights regarding capacity levels and when to soft close their strategies. We believe this can ensure that we are focusing on generating returns and not growth for growth's sake. And therefore it helps reduce the risk of eroding any ability to generate future returns for our clients. So Joanne, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, prior to joining Diamond Hill five years ago, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time thinking about capacity. And, and it's one of the things that I've learned to appreciate most about our investment philosophy here at Diamond Hill, along with the focus on long-term performance and developing deep client relationships. Other managers may set capacity limits, but what makes Diamond Hill's approach to capacity management different or unique? think that our approach to capacity management prioritizes our long-term client relationships. I mentioned um, preserving our ability to generate returns, but we also have um, soft-closed strategies at a point where there's still sufficient capacity for our existing clients to add additional capital if and when they desire. In our experience, soft-closing our strategies well in advance of when you might need to hard close them has helped temper the inflows such that we're still preserving that ability to generate alpha. We have a proven history of successfully closing our strategies. Most recently, we soft closed our large cap strategy and our SMID strategy has been closed since 2016. Our approach has helped ensure 
that we are able to continue to be strong partners for all of our clients over the long term. So Chris and Henry, I'm going to shift over to you guys to get into the weeds on capacity discipline and discuss some of the factors that portfolio managers consider when estimating a strategy's capacity. Chris, I'll start with you, and then then Henry, you can follow up. How do you consider qualitative and quantitative factors when determining capacity for different strategies? And does one perspective hold sway over the other, or do you consider them equally? Yeah, uh, for equity strategies, the primary goal is maintaining the ability to take meaningful positions in companies across the full market cap spectrum for a strategy. So that's especially important since we're committing to managing what we call high conviction portfolios. We look at capacities being linked to our ability to invest in individual securities more than just as a high level concept. And we look at that ability to do this starting analytically and then confirming it through our actual experiences. Uh, Really for any of our equity strategies, We're looking at whether we could buy meaningful positions as defined by the PM of the strategy in stocks towards the lower end of the strategy's market cap range. And we look at standalone capacity statistics, like if we bought a certain percentage of a company's outstanding shares, how large a weight could it be in a portfolio at different capacity levels? And then we also look at overlaps with other Diamond Hill strategies that can invest in stocks of the same size. And the liquidity of individual stocks, that's the ultimate gating factor. So that's where we throw in what we actually see uh, trading in the market. And Henry, I'll shift to you and ask that same question, you know, qualitative and quantitative factors and how do you weigh them and do you weigh them differently? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, For fixed income strategies, our primary objective is to ensure that we have the ability to invest in assets in bonds that we like that can get to our achieve our uh, you know our return target. Uh, one of the things in fixed income market is uh, everyone has a different approach, but given our bottom up security selection driven approach, there there is definitely the quantitative side is to really gauge the size of the market that we're uh, willing to participate in. Um, you know, especially not overdoing any sort of derivative overlays uh, to achieve the objectives. Uh, so we, you know, we, the quantitative factors include, you know, like the size of the market uh, and looking at the type of, not just the size, but also looking at uh, specifically the sectors that we like to invest in, how big those are. And then also looking at the annual issuance in those sectors as well. Uh, because one of the things in fixed income that's different is sometimes we may like a sector, uh, or a subsector, but the issuance in those uh, in those subsectors are pretty sparse. And maybe they will come once a year, twice a year, uh, which means you know, like we can't really reliably count that as part of our capacity because you can't count on when you're able to really take advantage and invest in those subsectors. So that's where the kind of qualitative side kind of comes into play as well. So after kind of sizing the market, uh, other other things we have to think about qualitatively is. Okay, like when those issues do come uh, or the sectors we invest in, how much can we reasonably acquire for our investments uh, versus, you know, how much competition there is for, for that uh, segment? Uh, so certainly, as we have seen in history, uh, some, some of the investors in this space kind of ebbs the flow a little bit. Uh, so, you know, also kind of have to uh, sort through the noise a little bit and see 
what we can reasonably expect in a long term. Uh, hence, you know, it's it's not quantitative or qualitative. One holds a sway over the other. It's a combination of the two. Uh, and also want to really just think about it long term as well. Uh, you know, for example, if you if you were to say what investments we want to invest in to achieve our goals, uh, if you use, say, last March, for example, then you could reasonably say the entire fixed income market, because based on our approach, the entire market looked extremely cheap and you could bought anything and, you know, pretty much you achieved our return target. Uh, but that, that's not a reasonable to assume uh, that you will, that will always happen. Also, being mindful of once we achieve a certain size, can we continue to move the needle with our next investments? And I think that's that's probably the bigger factor of the two is at what point in your normalized market can we no longer get enough bonds to make the next investments work for our investors? Meaning, if we if we are at capacity and we have a new client coming in, can we still achieve the same return for the new client as we do for our existing client? If that's a no, then that, that means we're at the top end of our uh, capacity range. So one of the things that, that is, is shared with our clients, we're very transparent about it, is the fact that we utilize ranges uh, instead of a set asset level. And we've talked about this a little bit, but you know, Henry, I'll start with you. And then Chris, if you want to add in as well, you know, why do we look at something as a range? So say four to 7 billion as an example, instead of saying you know, 10 billion, why do we utilize that range as, as the threshold for capacity? When I think about capacity, we are kind of forecasting it out uh, five years. Uh, it, it's hard to kind of gauge the issuance level in some of these sectors. Uh, ABS, for example, issuance continue to go up every year, but what makes up the issuance changes, right? So meaning some of the, some of the issuers in this space, um, maybe they use ABS initially, but once they mature as the business, they can untap the unsecured corporate debt market, the exit the ABS market. But that's one sector we do like, so then we lose them. So issuance changes on uh, annual basis. Uh, I think the other thing too is investor base continue to evolve and change as well. So it's really hard to say. Maybe I can look at today and say, okay, there's a dozen investors in this sector. Uh, based on the annual issuance, we can expect to get X amount of bonds if we're willing to engage in this sector. But that could change next year, right? Maybe some of the investors will exit or new ones will enter the market. So that would change our ability to acquire bonds in this market. Those are the two factors. I think the other part of it too is, you know, the, the debt market has continued to grow quite a bit over the last few years. And that, you know, we're not seeing any sort of slow growth there, you know, with a continued push for higher debt ceiling, um, you know, the, the overall debt level uh, has continued to accumulate higher, but not lower. Uh, so so it's, I think it makes sense to put a, a range there. I'd also think from our client's perspective too, if we put too precise of a number, then that means we have to constantly revise that. I would rather prefer not to, you know, constantly going back to our clients and say, hey, FYI, we have changed our capacity by half a billion, another billion, constantly revising them, that number. Uh, we are hoping this is a long-term uh, capacity number that we don't really have to change very frequently. Chris, any thoughts? Yeah, I'll just reiterate a point that Joanne made about uh, our strong preference is always to soft-close strategies and allow our existing clients to continue to make investments in the strategy. And it's much easier to do that with a range 
we can then uh, soft close a strategy maybe early in the capacity range or maybe a little bit deeper, a little bit higher into that range, depending on the pace of flows and, and what we're seeing trading in the marketplace. But that gives us the flexibility to, to give our current clients more ability to continue investing. So Chris, you've been at Diamond Hill since 2005. So I think it's safe to say that the idea of capacity discipline is ingrained in your investment genes. Henry, you and I joined a little over five years ago and, and capacity is something that we've had to adapt to and incorporate into our philosophy. But given Diamond Hill's fixed income philosophy focus on bottom up security selection, it feels like a perfect combination. Henry, how have you been able to incorporate capacity discipline into an investment process that dates back to the mid 80s? That's an excellent question. It's, you know, to your point, that's not something I really thought too much about in the past. Uh, but, you know, really looking back in history, uh, looking at the time periods where, you know, I found managing a lot of money was just become extremely difficult. It, it was, it became difficult to put ideas to work. Uh, you know, I, that was something that started to come up in my mind. It's like, okay, are we getting too big for the way we invest? Right. So, how we kind of incorporate it, you know, again, it's kind of how we come up with our current capacity is to look through historically the areas of focus uh, and then looking at, you know, where we think we can be and still be able to, you know, deliver alpha for our clients through various um, time periods. Uh, so that's, that's certainly something that's different. Uh, I think one more thing I would like to add another, I think, differentiation from fixed income and to equity is when we think about capacity on the fixed income side, uh, we also want to, it's not just a number, it's not just the assets under management, but it's also kind of how we, how many accounts make up that AUM. Uh, that's something that's also, uh, we want, you know, Mark and I, when we, after we join here, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, it's one thing that you manage one mutual fund uh, with a 30 billion capacity core, uh, it's it's another it's another thing where you have to manage like you know hundreds separate manager accounts that make up that thirty billion. Uh, the, the amount of work that goes into it, uh, given our approach, is quite different um, because you know in fixed income it's not about we can't buy the same securities and just putting every accounts, but it's about buying enough smaller securities that are similar enough uh, and putting them in all the different accounts. So amount of manpower it takes to do that in a huge number of accounts versus uh, a couple larger accounts uh, is quite different. So that's something that we are trying to incorporate in our philosophy as well when we think about capacity and thinking about you know, the future growth of the team, how we can handle that. So as we all know, the, this industry and the markets are constantly evolving and growing. This means that the capacity decision for strategies cannot remain stagnant and must account for the constant evolution of the markets. We've talked about this a little bit with fixed income, but Chris, how frequently does Diamond Hill review and or revise capacity ranges? And under what circumstances would you change an already stated range? Yeah, sure. Uh, we review capacity estimates for all our strategies, at least on an annual basis. Um, when we've made changes in the past, it's typically related to meaningful changes over time in either stock market capitalization ranges or in our internal research capacity or both. And just as an example, we recently adjusted our large cap strategy capacity upward, noting that the low end of the Russell 1000 index had risen significantly 
in the more than a decade from when we initially set the capacity range. Uh, as the strategy assets increased, our co-PMs found they were able to continue to manage the portfolio the way they wanted to. The strategy entered soft close status earlier this year, and we believe that our 20 to 25 billion in AUM capacity range is lower than most competitor large cap strategies and continues to effect, effectively give us access to the full large cap market cap range. So Chris, in the written piece titled The Art of, and Science of Capacity Management, you talk about the fact that portfolio managers have discretion to set up the capacity. What other team members are involved in that final capacity range decision? Uh, yeah, we, we recognized from the beginning how important it was to maintain the proper alignment of, with, with clients over time. That's kind of a core principle that has always been um, really core to Diamond Hill. And because of that, while portfolio managers get input from the CIO and other organizational leaders, we felt it was crucial that PMs have the full decision rights over capacity of their strategies. And we set up our incentive compensation system. So PMs are rewarded for getting value-added results for clients rather than attracting more assets. Then we gave those PMs full decision rights on capacity so that no business concerns from sales, upper management, even the board of directors would be able to outweigh that alignment of interests. And in addition to that strong alignment we built into the incentive comp system, which rewards value-added results over rolling five-year periods rather than any shorter period of time, the significant co-investment PMs make in their own strategies that also supports our alignment with clients. So Chris and Henry both, I, I, earlier I asked about the importance of quantitative and qualitative factors in determining capacity ranges. Chris, can you walk me through an example of determining capacity to help illustrate the decision-making process? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, starting about 15 years ago, we used spreadsheets and other forms of quantitative analysis to estimate what capacity levels for different strategies would allow us to continue to access the full market cap range. So for our small mid cap strategy, we initially set that capacity at two to $3 billion in assets at a time when the strategy AUM was probably less than 10% of that range. Then as the years went by and the stock market rose, we eventually bumped up the range modestly to two and a half to three and a half billion dollars. And based on our analysis, as well as my lived experience as the strategy PM, we felt this level of assets uh, would allow us to continue to have access to the full SMID market cap range. In early 2016, as strategy AUM reached the low end of that range, the two and a half billion dollars, we put the strategy into soft close status. The pace of inflows had been strong. And as we expected, uh, our existing pipeline brought us up to the middle of our capacity range, $3 billion by the end of the year. Uh, you know, in the five years since then, continued market appreciation along with modest net outflows have kept us within that capacity range. Uh, we do have some cushion to rise above that range with market appreciation and still be able to access the full SMID range of stocks. But my experience buying individual stocks towards the lower end of the SMID range 
suggests to me that we're at the right approximate level. And just, you know, we talk about there's the uh, quantitative and the qualitative, you know, look at actual trading experience to test that. So as an example, this summer, we bought a new position in Gates Industrial, which is a diversified industrial business. And while Gates has a market cap of around $5 billion, the available float for the stock is closer to one and a quarter billion dollars because of concentrated ownership for the business. And that puts it towards the low end of the SMID range. So this summer when we bought it, we were able to buy a meaningful position in the business over the course of a few days without having a noticeable impact on the stock price as we were buying. And if the assets in the SMID strategy were say three to four times as large, it would have been much more difficult, if not impossible, to buy gates at the prices that we paid. Henry, can you talk a little bit about the difference in capacity between core and short duration? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we, we utilize the same philosophy and process, uh, but the areas of focus in, in terms of investments are quite different. Uh, there's certainly overlap, but if you look at core, you know, our largest investment areas will be agency mortgage-backed securities, treasury, uh, those two make up you know 50 to 60 percent of the investments in uh in core and those both of those areas are extremely large um but if you look at short duration uh, we have a heavy emphasis in asset-backed securities commercial mortgage-backed securities much much smaller percentage of the market uh, a lot less represented in the index so the availability of bonds in those space are just much more limited so that's, you know, that's, that's the main reason for the major difference in the capacity. One thing to note is there is a little bit, uh, when we talk about these ranges, these are meant to be standalone ranges, uh, but to, to the point that, you know, core and short duration do share some of the same securities. So if one strategy were to grow much faster and another gets to the uh, capacity much quicker, it could potentially impact the other one. That's another reason for the range as well is, um, to kind of account for the, the fact that some of these strategies do have a lot of overlaps and do share some of the securities. Joanne, Henry, and Chris, I want to thank you guys so much for joining me on the podcast today to discuss such an important topic for Diamond Hill and our clients. It's been an insightful conversation, uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.